the ketogenic diet has been around for a long time. I mean, there, there have been reports dating back, I mean, really to the earlier 1900s of using a sort of ketogenic diet approach to address various health issues. Welcome to the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast, where we speak with credentialed experts about the hottest trending topics in health and nutrition. I'm your host, Mary Purdy, integrative dietitian and nutrition educator, and we're happy to have you join us today. So the idea of burning fat by eating more is kind of enticing for a lot of people and possibly why the keto diet has continued to rise in popularity, especially over the last few years. So while keto has been a trending topic in books and on social media, there are a lot of myths floating around and truths that need to be heard by those who are either considering a keto diet, already following one, or are simply intrigued by the concept. To speak more about the science behind the keto diet, we are joined today by Dr. Jacob May. Dr. May is a registered dietitian who earned his PhD in kinesiology, nutrition, and rehabilitation sciences. He is currently a postdoctoral research fellow at Pennington Biomedical Research Center, where his clinical research interests include skeletal muscle metabolism, ketogenesis, and clinical malnutrition. In addition to his full-time commitment to research, Dr. May volunteers for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and runs a podcast series for the Healthy Aging Dietetic Practice Group. Welcome, Dr. May. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Hello and hello, everyone listening. <laughs> well, to start, it would be great to learn about the Pennington Biomedical Research Center, which I hear is like the Disney park for nutrition researchers. Any exciting or interesting research projects that you're working on right now? Oh my gosh, Pennington is absolutely outstanding. We really do need to get more people to know about Pennington. They are one of the premier leaders in nutrition research, especially in the United States. Um, so we're located in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, but we have just such amazing facilities to do nutrition research everywhere from like the cell culture end. So growing tissue cells in Petri dishes and maybe seeing how nutritional factors impact them to doing human clinical research. We have some of the best facilities in the world where um, we have what's called metabolic chambers. And so these are actually full rooms that people can live in and you measure everything going in and out of that chamber, including the breath. So you can get intricate measures of metabolism. You know exactly how many calories are going in, exactly how many calories are going out. It's, it's really amazing. We wow. also do, I won't get too deep into this, but these methods are called hyperinsulinemic euglycemic clamps. Uh, don't worry about that. But essentially what we can do is we can address like diabetes and issues with blood sugar on a totally different level. We lay people down in hospital beds and we actually infuse into them sugar and insulin and we see how their body responds. So you just get a really intricate understanding of that. And so we have cell culture, we have human clinical, and then we have population sciences where we actually try and translate all these research findings that we have and disseminate it out into the public. There's just some really outstanding work from the researchers there. They're looking at educating MDs to deliver nutrition information and improve health that way too. So it's really the full gambit of nutrition research at this facility. And they have everything you want if you have a nutrition-related research question. 
Holy moly. That sounds like a researcher's dream, a nutritionist's dream, a doctor's dream. Incredible. And that insulinemia hyperbolic chamber, <laughs> it sounds like a Gilbert and Sullivan uh, lyric or something like that. Incredible. Great to know about. And, and you're a fellow podcast host for the Healthy Aging Dietetic Practice Group. And I also noticed that a lot of your research is in the area of longevity, which I appreciate because I would like to live to be at least a hundred. So what sparked your interest in the area? of healthy aging and longevity. Yeah, you know, my my actual movement into to that kind of realm was really more from the volunteer end. It was really the healthy aging dietetic practice group that that drew me in there. You know, my research interests are, are really targeted at skeletal muscle metabolism, ketogenesis and otherwise, but there's something special about that particular practice group and just how all the volunteers just really want to improve the dietetic profession. So I started working with them and just started volunteering and moving forward with them. And so that's how I kind of got interested in aging. Wasn't I got interested in aging and then started volunteering with that group. That group kind of drew me in and got me interested in aging, which was really cool. And so, you know, I, I don't do a lot of the personal hands-on research with longevity, but I'm sure you've seen maybe the publication on, you know, calorie restriction and increasing lifespan. And so it's, it's just a really interesting area. And, you know, certainly this has been an area of interest for researchers dating back, you know, all the way back to the fountain of youth, right? Like that was always kind of the goal. How do we live forever? So that's just kind of the, the overarching interest is, you know, what's going on there from a more practical perspective. I think with all the advances we have from, you know, medical approaches, nutrition, and otherwise, people are living longer. So understanding better ways to improve the quality of life of older individuals is just of growing importance. And so that's something I'm particularly passionate about. Yeah. So much fun to be 98 years old if you're not healthy and, and living with a sense of vitality. So I appreciate that for sure. And, and speaking of this longevity, you also presented a webinar as part of Oregon's professional education webinar series titled Calorie Restriction, Longevity and Muscle Function, Emerging Research and Clinical Considerations, which sounds fascinating. Fountain of youth embodied right there. Can you share just a couple of top level highlights from that webinar? Yeah. So I'll just, I'll just maybe give a snippet of what we talked about is calorie restriction is turning out to be one of the only ways that we're seeing we can improve the lifespan of different organisms. And now we've actually done randomized clinical trials at Pennington using calorie restriction as a way to address parts of the aging process. You know, so aging has all sorts of intrinsic and extrinsic factors. And in humans, the only one that seems to be able to impact those intrinsic aging factors is calorie restriction, you know? So a really, really cool stuff. Your body just adapts and, and kind of changes and slows that aging process, or at least the data really suggests that it does right now. On the counterpoint of that, and this is more towards my interest in muscle, is when you restrict calories, you're inherently going to lose body mass. A lot of that will be fat, but some of that will be muscle. And in older adults, mobility, right? You need your muscles to move around is one of the most important factors to quality of life. So where is that balance between improving the lifespan and slowing aging versus also making sure you have enough strength and mobility? What they're showing so far is that the, the calorie restriction, although it reduces muscle mass, it may maintain muscle function. It's a really exciting area for calorie restriction and healthy aging right now. I might need to take a trip to Baton Rouge and get myself into one of those chambers over there. <laughs> 
And you can find his full webinar listeners available for one CPEU on healthcare.orgain.com or in the show notes for this episode. So Dr. May, before we dive into the facts and the myths about the ketogenic diet, it would be great if you could just touch on what is the ketogenic diet? What does it entail and how does it work from a nutritional standpoint? Absolutely. You know, so the ketogenic diet has been around for a long time. I mean, there, there have been reports dating back, I mean, really to the earlier 1900s of using a sort of ketogenic diet approach to address various health issues. And a ketogenic diet is in its most basic sense, a reduction or really minimization of dietary carbohydrates and replacing those calories with dietary fats. And then what this does is this excess of fats and, and small amount of carbohydrates causes the body to look for different fuel sources. And one of the ways it does that is by elevating ketones. You don't really eat ketones, right? Your body has to make them. So it's really, in its most basic sense, a shift in exogenous input, right? So a shift in your diet coming into your body, low carbs, high fat, and then also a shift in the fuels that your body is using changing from carbohydrates and fats to ketones and fats internally. And so that's kind of just the basic concept behind it. And what we're finding is that this change has a physiologic impact on the body that may impact other important measures that we're interested in today, weight, metabolic disease, other items. And it's interesting because people have followed this for a variety of different reasons, but it originally, when it was created, was focused on a much, much different component of, of, of health. Can you talk a little bit about the roots of the ketogenic diet and then why you think it actually went mainstream? Yeah. You know, I think clinically really the, the first major reports were really in, in epilepsy. So individuals that are struggling with having seizures and before we had medications for it, the ketogenic diet was used as a potential approach to really reduce the quantity of seizures or the frequency of seizures that, that people were having move forward to today. And you have uh, really just outstanding improvements in pharmacology and the approaches we have to epilepsy now. So it's not really sort of a, a frontline therapy anymore, but it still is something that is used for people that are not responsive to the medications we have. So there is that, you know, core clinical utilization in that sort of niche disease case scenario. So say more about that, because I know a lot of people follow the keto diet for weight loss, but there are many other specific disease states or medical issues that may be benefited from following the keto diet. Yeah. So it's really interesting. You're, you're right. I think the main draw that people see from it is when it's pushed as a weight loss approach. There's a lot of debate as to whether or not the ketogenic diet itself is changing physiology to help people with, with weight loss, or if maybe having a, an easier kind of yes, no approach to foods is something that is helping people's behavior and, and leading to weight loss. So I, I'd say there's really still a big debate in the field as to the impact that the ketogenic diet has and what's causing it. I mean, it's an area we still need to know a lot more about, and there's certainly research realms on kind of both ends of the fence. In terms of other areas of health, I think the biggest one is really metabolic disease and people that have issues with controlling their blood sugar and diabetes would be in that realm. And one of the reasons for that is inherent to a core concept of the ketogenic diet, which is minimizing dietary exogenous carbohydrates, right? If you're not eating a lot of carbohydrates, it's really difficult for your body to have high levels of blood sugar. There's, there's certainly physiologic processes within that can cause that, but that's one of the 
primary non-weight loss related reasons people look into it is to have better control of their blood sugar levels. Now for any individual, I want to make sure I'm I'm clear. I'm not just saying, you know, anyone with blood sugar issues would benefit from the ketogenic diet because there are other downsides that perhaps we'll get into. Like uh, you do have higher amounts of dietary fat and otherwise that may have a negative impact on items like cardiovascular health. So certainly it's, it's a balance between all these different items, but I'd say just from what many people see out there is the advertisements for weight loss, the advertisements for blood sugar control, or I think it's kind of pitched now as type two diabetes prevention or you might see some um, targeted advertisements like a diabetes cure, uh, which I know you guys can't see me, but I put that up in quotes because I want to be very clear. I don't want to necessarily pitch it as such. Absolutely. I appreciate that too. And, and, and essentially what you're saying is that there's a a potential for the keto diet to be sort of like a metabolic reset to help with how our metabolic uh, function operates and to improve upon that, especially for those who have blood sugar issues, but maybe uh, other cardiovascular issues as well. And I want to understand if there are different permutations of ketogenic diets, or someone might just follow one for a, a few months or part of the year and maybe cycle in and out of it. Talk about the short-term variations of following keto. Absolutely. You know, this is one of my really big concerns with a a kind of mass use of the ketogenic diet is differences between maybe a public generated or lay generated ketogenic diet versus the ketogenic diets we use in the research studies where we have defined benefits of using it. And so in my mind, those diets are are very different. So yeah, it would be great to kind of look at how these two different approaches look. And so the first one I'll start with is really just the average ketogenic diet. When someone just hears, you know, Hey, try the keto diet, low carb, high fat, go. You tend to see a lot of red meats, a lot of cheeses, really high amounts of dietary saturated fat, almost no fruits, often very little vegetables. And if you contrast that with the research grade ketogenic diets that are used in research studies, we see for fats, you know, instead of excessive red meats, what we see is fish. We see avocados, we see olive oil, we see a focus on nuts. So you really change the profile of fats that are coming in. Beyond that, the majority of research-grade ketogenic diets use a significant amount of both fruits and vegetables. We're talking fruits that are lower on the glycemic index. You you are keeping your carbohydrates smaller, but those items are built into the research-grade diets, thinking something like a half cup of berries with your breakfast. And so these are items that are large contrasts between what we see if you just look at maybe the average person doing the ketogenic diet on their own versus doing the ketogenic diet with a registered dietitian or as part of the research study. And it's that contrast that I think might have a huge impact on the downstream health effects, but we, we really just don't know because no one's done that comparison. Right. And it's so important to talk about the content of this diet. So I'm really glad you, you brought that up and I want to get deeper into this. So I actually want to try and understand the percentages that are out there. I think the basic numbers that we hear on a general basis is around 80% of your calories come from fat around 10 to 15% come from protein and around five to maybe 10% come from carbohydrates. Is that the typical distribution? 
Yeah, you know, that's that's right in the range. I I would push people to consider a little higher protein dose. I think the more and more we learn, and this is my bias as a muscle guy, right? So <laughs> protein is one of those main regulators of, of kind of your muscle mass with, with training or otherwise and other factors. So I am a big proponent of pushing that protein level up to 20% or maybe pushing towards 25 and even reducing a little dietary fat because of it. The main thrust of the ketogenesis or the increase in ketones that comes from the ketogenic diet is really from that reduction in carbohydrates. And so I'm a big fan of pushing, you know, towards that realm, but I think your, your general range percentages are right on. Okay. And then, so in terms of fat, you mentioned already trying to maybe be a little bit mindful about some of the more high saturated sources of fat, like the the meats and the red meats and the bacon and things like that. But you mentioned things like fish, avocado, avocado oils, perhaps the nuts, the seeds, the olives, the olive oils, are those the types of things that would be included in that fat realm in terms of trying to maintain health benefits and not uh, overtax the body with an excessive amount of saturated fat? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think anything you can do to increase that percentage of mono and polyunsaturated fats is going to be a benefit when consuming the ketogenic diet. And this is just based on what we know about different ratios of saturated fat, monounsaturated fats, polyunsaturated fats. I don't like to label things healthy or unhealthy or good or bad necessarily. You're going to have more saturated fat on a ketogenic diet. And what we're seeing in the research studies is that doesn't seem to be inherently bad when they're those research grade ketogenic diets coming along with the fruits, the vegetables, the healthy fats, again, just kind of putting a, a, a coined term on it as, as healthy fat, but your mono and polyunsaturated fats as well. Yeah. And I think we're not saying that saturated fats are bad necessarily. Of course, we're saying that in excess, especially for certain people, they can be bad. You know, I worked at a, an organization where we had people who were on the, uh, the keto diet as patients and we really saw a genetic difference where people were adopting a ketogenic diet and some of their blood markers went way off the charts, uh, inflammation, cholesterol, triglycerides, just, it was, it was not, it was not a good model of, of a diet for them. And then others who were adopting the same diet, who knows what the content of that diet was, but they actually saw their markers go down. So it was really interesting to see the variation, which must be related, of course, to content of diet, but also to the genetics. Absolutely. And, you know, this is what we're trying to move towards as a nutrition field in general is this like precision nutrition approach. Or if you're not familiar with the buzzword precision nutrition, uh, again, just speaking to the general audience, that's like personalized nutrition therapy to get the goals that you're looking for. And it, you and someone else may have the same exact goal and you could use different diets to get there or different versions of a diet to get there. And that's what's so cool about the future of nutrition research right now. For sure. And I have a question about ketones and fat. So how do ketones get formed from fat? Take us through that. Yeah. You know, essentially in the most basic sense, your body is going to use carbohydrates and fats for energy, right? And so you, you limit carbohydrates and then you have higher amounts of fats and what the liver can do when there's these extra fats around that you really aren't using at that given time is it converts it into ketones. And what's special about the liver is the liver is going to make those ketones, but it's not going to use it right there. Instead, what it's going to do is it's going to push it out in circulation. And so then those ketones can take that energy originally coming from the fats, 
transfers it into ketones, and then circulates that around the body so that your different tissues can then use ketones as energy. That's kind of a special thing that, that happens in the liver. If you're reading some of the science articles, we might call this a hepatic ketogenesis. If you're just reading more of a uh, lay-based article, it might just be termed ketogenesis, or you'll hear the term ketosis. It all kind of means the same things where your body is kind of taking this energy primarily from lipids in the liver and then converting it to ketones and sending that out to the rest of the body. And how do we know we're in ketosis? I know people do some urine testing or testing your ketone bodies. What's, what's, what's the typical layperson able to do? You know, and this is such a great question because you'll see ketosis defined differently depending on where you're looking at. If you just do a scan of the literature, you'll have papers that define it as, you know, 0.5 millimolar of ketones in the blood. Others will define it as 1.0, others 1.5. And so, you know, where do you, where is the actual cutoff? What is, what really is ketosis? I think when I think about it, I think about, do I have more ketones than the average person on, on more of a high carbohydrate diet? And what does that look like? In the fasted state, I'd say the average person is probably somewhere around 0.2, 0.25 millimolars of ketones. So if you prolong your fasting, that tends to just kind of raise up and, until it gets higher and higher. But then you eat a meal and, it, and it, it reduces. So it's kind of the opposite, right? If you don't eat, ketones go up. And if you eat, ketones go down. So the average person walking around has really minimal levels of ketones. What I would consider ketosis is consuming a diet where your levels are, instead of going below that like kind of average realm of the 0.25 millimolar, you're above that. And, and maybe maybe 0.5 millimolar is a good cutoff, maybe 1.5 is, but I think all of those are having larger rates of ketosis than, than kind of the average person. Now, I, as much as anyone, love a good conversation about millimoles, but Dr. May, would you help us translate into real world talk how to test ketosis? Sure. So there's a couple of ways to do it. If you use the blood tests, which are now much more widely available than they were previously, you can purchase them from your CVS if it's available, just like you could purchase a blood glucose monitor. You can get a blood ketone monitor and they'll, they'll pop it out right in, right in millimolars for you. But if you're not into that, don't worry. There are um, what we call urine dipsticks as well. So you can buy a little tube with some filaments of paper in it. And throughout the day, you just put a little bit of your urine on there and it'll actually tell you how much, how much of the ketones are showing up in your urine. And that's a, a reasonable indicator of what's going on in terms of your body and your blood as well. Um, so there's not really a great level, uh, you know, these sort of urine dipsticks aren't super accurate, but what you can do is, is you can get those and test them before you do the ketogenic diet and see what it looks like. And then test them on the days after you're doing the ketogenic diet, you know, try it early on, try it later. And what it'll give you is just kind of a, a color switch and it'll show you, okay, this is what it looks like if you don't have any ketones. And then this is the color it'll be as your ketones are going up. So you can use that as kind of a rough indicator, but I, I would also say that for the average person that's not necessarily doing the ketogenic diet for a clinical purpose. I'm not positive that focusing on your level of ketogenesis is going to be that impactful on the health results that you're getting. So I would say if you're interested in doing the blood ketone monitors or the urine ketone monitors, I think that's a great addition to help keep you on track and know where your body's at. But in terms of the overall physiology, I think most people can just look at their diet 
and consume the ketogenic diet and understand that it is likely that they're in ketogenesis if they're limiting their carbohydrates and keeping their fats higher. One quick question about brain function and the keto diet, since we know that the beginnings of the keto diet were aimed at helping with epilepsy, what other benefits might this diet have on brain function? Oh my gosh, it is such an emerging area of research. That's so exciting. From my end, you know, I, I played collegiate football. And so there's studies looking at the impact of CTE or boy, I'm going to mess the word up, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. One of, I'm, I'm sure that's wrong, but it's, it's the issues that they're seeing in football players, right? Uh, it's this hitting of the head and getting the brain damage because of it downstream. And so there's research in that realm. There's research in the realm of Alzheimer's and dementia, or, you know, we call that type three diabetes. So you could kind of see that transition there. So boy, I don't know if there's anything concrete just yet, but it is an exciting area of research for sure. Emerging evidence is always fascinating to talk about. What about the keto diet for cancer diagnoses? I know that it can be used for things like glioblastoma. I work with a patient uh, with the keto diet on that. What are the recommendations around that? And has it been shown to be effective? Man, another great and, and area where I would call it that emerging research or emerging evidence, because the, the potential for the ketogenic diet to improve outcomes with cancer therapy or downstream with remission is really interesting. Most of our work right now is really focused on cell culture or animal models. So I, I do want to be cautious about trying to translate that right, right to the human realm. But I think that there's a lot of potential out there and it, it's certainly something to consider. Another area of caution though, that I, I would highly stress to anyone considering the use of the ketogenic diet in the cancer realm is understanding that it's always going to be used in concert with our best pharmacological approaches to cancer treatment. I think sometimes, especially with the ketogenic diet, to me, things get a little scary when you see advertisements on the internet filled with misinformation. And that, that's, that's a big concern with the ketogenic diet right now is so much misinformation out there. So I would say for anyone interested, I would say it's an emerging area of research. It's quite interesting. I'd imagine there are some people that would benefit from it, but it's always going to come from a realm of working within the medical profession. Okay. So we've covered fat. I want to get to carbohydrates because as dietitians, we are always looking to get more fiber into our patient's diet. We know the benefits, nutritional benefits, health benefits of, of fiber in the diet. And so how does someone on a 5% of their calories diet or 5% of their, or 10% of their calories diet coming from carbs, how do they get enough fiber to feed their gut microbiome to help with cholesterol levels? What do you suggest around that? Yeah. And you know, that's a great question too. I think, you know, one of the types of fibers that I think is really important are, are the soluble fibers that you would get in something like oatmeal, which is certainly more of a, a higher carbohydrate item. So it does get a little more difficult. I mean, certainly your fruits and your vegetables are great. I think it is something that each individual person kind of needs to, to balance on their own in terms of the importance that fiber has in their diet and whether or not they're willing to um, potentially reduce ketosis a little bit to be able to consume these other forms of carbohydrates that we know have beneficial effects. So I think it really depends on, on the person. Um, to, to give sort of an example, someone using the ketogenic diet for epilepsy is really dependent on having high levels of ketones in their body to be able to counteract 
the epileptic effect, right? So they might not be willing to sacrifice high levels of ketogenesis for consuming different forms of dietary fiber or increased carbohydrates for all the benefits you just mentioned. Whereas someone consuming the ketogenic diet for weight loss purposes might not be as dependent on the ketogenic diet in terms of higher levels. We don't have great evidence that would suggest like high levels of ketones just lead to weight loss in themselves. So if you reduce that rate of ketogenesis, can you then implement and liberalize the carbohydrate sources in your diet? And so I think that's really important to take from an individual level and say, what am I using the ketogenic diet for? And what parts of it are most important for me and my results? Excellent. So once again, personalized nutrition or precision nutrition is key here. So that's a bit about the carbohydrates. And I also want to mention, you talked about vegetables uh, and how important, obviously we know they are for their phytochemical content, uh, for all the different vitamins and minerals and antioxidant potential they offer. How do you suggest people get sufficient vegetables in their diet so they have access to all of those incredibly protective nutrients? Another great question. I'm, I'm so happy you mentioned phytochemicals. So I maybe didn't share this with you all, but I think it's cool. So at Pennington, I was part of what's called a, a T32 training program. It's a, a federally funded grant to train individuals that are younger in their research career like myself. And what uh, program that was, was botanical approaches to combat metabolic syndrome. So it's a little funny. I am he in here talking about the ketogenic diet, but my research for that training was actually looking at phytochemical components of whole grains that have potential benefits on whole body or skeletal muscle health. So it's this, it's this really interesting dynamic. And, and I, I find it very fun to be able to be on maybe what you would call both sides of the coin, you know, looking at benefits of these carbohydrate-based foods, but also looking at benefits of the ketogenic diet and maybe finding ways to merge them. So uh, just a quick sidebar on that, because I find it interesting. In terms of vegetables, I think, honestly, the core my plate recommendations that we have for meal by meal intake, I think can be applied to the ketogenic diet. I, I think you can do that, that sort of transition, right? You'll be substituting certain items, right? So for example, and if people aren't familiar with my plate, you, you essentially just sit back and you envision anytime I eat a meal, what should my plate of food look like? And you just envision your food being a circular plate. And the, the, the classic my plate is, okay, you have Half of your plate be made of fruits and vegetables, a quarter of your plate grains, and a quarter of your plate protein. And if you are interested in the ketogenic diet, I think you can really do a very similar approach, just substituting those grains for maybe of your maybe more of your healthy fat items, a serving of seeds or nuts or otherwise. But I, I think just looking at every meal and saying, where are my vegetables coming from? If it's like maybe one meal a day, where are my fruits coming from? But finding a way to, with every meal, incorporate those sort of items into each meal, that's the easiest way to, to kind of keep it going and keep that intake high. Keep that color on the plate. Let's talk about protein because we've covered our, our carbs, our fats, and protein is key here. You started talking a little bit about, obviously, there's a crossover between fat and protein with meats and, and fish and things like that. But how do we have people meet their protein needs without necessarily going over some of those saturated fat recommendations and maybe focusing on more plant-based options? What's out there? 
Yeah, you know, and and this is this is something where there's becoming so many more great options to be able to get protein into your diet. I think it's easier than ever for someone no matter what diet they're on to consume adequate protein. You know, and I hope I'm not stepping out of line, you know, we have dietary recommendations. We have the RDA of protein intake, which is set at about 0.8 grams per kilogram. Uh, I forget what that is in, in pounds per, uh, per person for, for you guys. It's probably about uh, half a gram of protein per pound of body weight, somewhere in that weight range. Right. right? So it's, it's, uh-huh. it's, it's relatively on the low end, but this is our large core guideline that we have. I think there's enough evidence out there now to suggest, especially for like the aging realm where I'm, I'm quite interested in consuming higher amounts of protein can be beneficial. So I think you can get to increasing that by like 50% above the guidelines, I think should be a goal for many people. And to be able to do that, you have to find ways to add protein into your diet. I think nowadays, I mean, my gosh, we have so many great ways to do it from ketogenic foods in particular. You could focus on looking more at your eggs along with your, your meats and fish. And otherwise you could look at uh, incorporating items like seeds and nuts into your dishes if you're cooking a certain dish. And so there's ways to add protein um, and maintain that ketogenic diet approach. And then honestly, I mean, supplements are a really great way these days just to be able to increase sort of your, you know, dietary intake of proteins without creating maybe too much of a stress. If you have a hard time, you know, cooking three meals. If you can only cook one or two, it's an easy way to get a high quality protein source. And so I'm a big fan of dietary supplements as well. And I also know that tofu, which is a plant-based protein is, has very little carbohydrates as well. So for those who are looking for more plant-based options, that's another uh, opportunity to get that in there and get some of those, uh, more of those phytochemicals in there too. And you mentioned supplements. What do you think about some of the the keto protein powders that are out there? And I have to say, I've been seeing some cricket protein powders out there as well. So curious about your thoughts about those and the (laughs) collagen protein powders too. Yeah. You know, there's, there's so many different sources now. I think really to me, what's more important is looking at, at supplement safety. I think you can find a lot of really similar products from a variety of areas, but focusing on companies you trust and brands you trust to know that the supplement is safe because they're not regulated, right? Like that's, that's, that's the concern is that a lot of dietary supplements aren't. And so when you have um, these companies that are very trustworthy, like Orgain, when you have products that are used even on a clinical scale, having something like, like that behind the supplement you're, you're using to me is more important than focusing on different minutiae within any particular supplement. So let's say that someone's interested in trying out this keto diet, Dr. May. And I'm curious, what might a typical day of meals or just even a meal look like that covers our bases, healthy fats, adequate protein, a little bit of carbs, some phytochemicals, and of course, flavor. That's key as well for uh, maintaining a good diet. Oh, gosh, boy. You know, there's so many different options. You know, I'm a big fan of watching like celebrity chef cooking. I would recommend people look into different recipes that are up there and tweak them just a bit to to transform them into ketogenic diet approaches because you're right, flavor plays such a huge role in our diet and and really maintaining a diet for a long period of time. You have to enjoy what you're eating. But yeah, you know, it's really it's it's a transformation of uh, if we go with breakfast, something from a uh, grain-based breakfast, which is very common, whether it's toast or cereals or otherwise, 
and transitioning that over to something like an omelet. And you can mix your spinach and other items in there. I'm a big fan of mushrooms. So I always like to throw those in there. You know, you can mix those items in. Um, It's maybe having some Greek yogurt with a half cup of berries mixed in and, and getting your protein and your fats from the dairy. You know, you can focus on maybe having not non-fat dairy, which is really quite common nowadays. You can focus more towards those, you know, 2% or full fat dairy products. That's just kind of a a simple transition to make from sort of a high carbohydrate meal to a, a lower carbohydrate, higher fat meal. Thank you. And anytime mushrooms are involved, I'm coming over for breakfast for sure. And what about side effects? Anything that people should be mindful of? I know that interesting smelling breath is one of the uh, things that might happen for certain individuals. Yeah. You know, so ketones in the breath will do that. It's actually, it's funny you mentioned the breath. So one of, one of the other research areas I do is we measure molecules in the exhale breath. We actually just put a publication out where we looked at the models in the breath and we saw that there was a difference in individuals that had malnutrition versus not malnutrition. And, you know, that just plays back to, I think there's new areas of nutrition research and the breath is really interesting to me, but ketones will do that. So one of the ketones is acetone and it's a really volatile compound. We can measure it in the breath, but it's present in really small levels in the body because it's so volatile. So it'll, it'll come out and you can breathe it. And that is a a, a scent that you could have. It's a little fruity, but that is something that could happen. Whether many people consider that necessarily a a side effect. I don't know, you know, grab your mints, grab your chewing gum. You might, you might be okay. But you know, on the, on the other end, there are more serious items, right? You have risks of hypoglycemia or, or low blood sugar. And this is a particular concern for individuals that have issues with their blood sugar and are on medications for that. And so certainly I would highly recommend anyone discuss with their physician, or I'm a big fan of dietitians, right? Being one, uh, I know Mary, you are as well, consulting with the dietitian to be able to implement a sort of good ketogenic diet approach in the safest manner possible. For the average person, is it a concern? Not likely. Some people report what they call the keto flu or just feelings of a a little bit of illness when your body is transitioning from utilizing carbohydrates to to utilizing ketones. And I believe some of that is is whittled down to maybe salt imbalances, but that's a little beyond my, uh, my purview. But, you know, those are kind of the main, what I would call side effects that are out there. Most mild, you know, some some moderate with the keto flu, and then the concerning ones are really for individuals that have more medical specific needs. So it's good to know that the keto diet is not appropriate for every single person out there, no matter what your metabolic issues are, and that it's really key to work with a practitioner to help you make sure that it's appropriate for your condition. And I I did have a patient who was on the keto diet, and what they found was they had this real surge of energy, like just huge amount of energy and what they felt like was clear headedness. And as we broke it down, we actually found out that they were struggling with hypoglycemia and they were actually dipping way down. They perceive it as being this like, Ooh, I feel so clear headed, but they were actually really running on adrenaline. So it's really key to, to, to mention those side effects or mention those potential presentations of signs and symptoms that may be indicating that the keto diet is not working for you, or that maybe you're not doing it in the way that's best for your body. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what do you think is the biggest struggle for those who are starting to follow a a keto diet? You know, I, I think it's the same as with any other diet. It's the ability to create certain structure and restrictions 
to modify your diet a certain way. With the ketogenic diet, it's a little easier to understand than, than maybe other diets out there, right? Because the ketogenic diet is, okay, I, I cut my carbohydrates. That's that's the restriction. But sometimes that becomes difficult for people, whether it's taste preferences, whether it's gatherings with family or friends, um, or just the general food environment we're in makes it pretty difficult to maintain that. But that's the same for, for any diet, right? If you had someone trying to change their diet to a Mediterranean-based diet, and let's say they're working on consuming fish three times a week, you, you have the same sort of struggle where it's like, okay, can I build this structure and restriction into my life and, and maintain that long-term? So, you know, I think the potential downsides or what you would say struggles with maintaining the ketogenic diet are actually very similar to really almost every diet approach out there. Mm. And if somebody is looking to start this diet, before we sign off here, Dr. May, what's one thing that that person might consider or keep in mind to set them up for success? Let's see. Number one, um, I, I would say I use this phrase occasionally, modify your mindset. And it's it's this difference in thinking of, of these sort of diets as a short-term approach to just weight loss and thinking about that on a different scale, right? So if someone's jumping on this, and let's just use weight loss as an example, if someone's jumping on this for weight loss, I think it's really easy to look in terms of checking out the scale every day and, and am I improving or are you not versus thinking, you know, what's my goal in a year? how do I want to adjust my weight through diet in a year? What about three years? And what about five years? And when you place your mindset on that longer scale, it makes it easier for you to implement these smaller day-to-day -day goals and changes with the understanding that you don't necessarily have to see a reduction in body weight every day. And so planning long-term, I think is a big item that will help people. And then the other one, I use the phrase enlist an expert. I would always work with someone and, you know, certainly I, I'm a dietitian. Uh, I, you know, if people think this may be a little biased coming from me, but, but dietitians are critical in terms of long-term adherence to diet regimens, no matter what they are, ketogenic diet or otherwise. And so I think having an expert on your team to help you with both the day-to-day -day and the long-term goals is just one of the best ways that you can really optimize your chances of success using a ketogenic diet for whatever your goal is. Having an expert that just knows food in and out, knows the physiology in and out is just an outstanding approach. So realistic goals, modify your mindset and enlist an expert. I think we could probably all use that advice in some area of our lives in general. Thank you so much, Dr. May. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you and your enthusiasm is contagious and so appreciate your knowledge and expertise today. Oh my gosh, Mary, thank you so much for having me on. This was an absolute blast to chat about. I love talking about nutrition. Like some people are like, oh man, it's your job. Should I ask Jake about this? Ask me about it. I love it. This is my favorite thing to do. Well, we are soul siblings on that front, so I'm sure our paths will cross again. We look forward to having you join us for future episodes of the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast, sponsored by Orgain, where we'll interview more subject matter experts on a variety of health and nutrition-focused topics. To stay up to date on the latest episodes of this podcast, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks so much for tuning in, and see you next time. Whether you're considering or following a keto diet, 
Orgain offers a variety of keto products to suit your preferences, which contain an ideal keto-friendly ratio of protein to fat with no added sugar. Meet your protein needs with grass-fed and pasture-raised Orgain Keto Collagen Protein Powder and Orgain Keto-Based Protein Powder. Plus, start your day with a new Orgain Keto-Friendly Organic Plant-Based Protein Pancake and Waffle Mix made with almond and oat flour. Visit Orgain.com to learn more.